This is Stinky Lulu Says, an irregular podcast about contemporary theater. I am Brian Herrera, and I'm Stinky Lulu. I'm also a theater professor, and I see a lot of shows, and Stinky Lulu Says is where I have my say about what I see. And in this current cycle of episodes, which arrive to your podcasting service each Sunday from um, now until at least the end of April, I offer my weekly reflections on what it's like to teach a college course on theater and society now when all the theaters and all the colleges are still trying to figure out what it means to do theater, to do college remotely during an ongoing global health crisis, not to mention political chaos, economic precarity, and demands for racial reckoning, basically all the still unfolding uncertainties that have defined that defined the year 2020 and which continue to shape our discovery of whatever it is that the year 2021 might have in store for us and in this week's episode of stinky lulu says i do something i've never done before i read audiobook style a piece of my own published writing in this instance my essay in defense of remote theater which just this week appeared as the introductory essay for the second issue of the new scholarly journal prompt a journal of theater theory practice and teaching prompt as i mentioned is a new scholarly journal this is only its second issue dedicated to connecting theater practice to theater scholarship through pedagogy or teaching practice it's it's an exciting multimedia and multimodal journal accessible at uh, sites.psu.edu slash prompt. I'll say that again. Sites, that's S-I-T-E-S dot P-S-U dot E-D-U slash prompt. And so um, I guess what I'll do is I'll read from the journal's own about page to describe what it names as its mission. Founded in 2020 by colleagues at the Pennsylvania State University of Theater, the goal of each issue of Prompt is to teach something in the field of theater and performance studies using a humble technology. Accompanying short essays reflect on an idea that sparks a scholar's interest. Prompt is a generative space where theater artists, educators, and scholars converge to exchange ideas that prompt new thoughts and practices. Now this idea um, uh, to teach something in the field of theater and performance studies using a humble technology to explain how that is. You can sort of look at the journal's most recent issue You can to see those ideas in practice, because what you'll see is you'll see um, short YouTube videos demonstrating principles of theatrical design or theat uh, theatrical design using quilting squares or and color theory, how we can think about color theory using quilting squares or how we can sort of understand ideas of theatrical perspective and set design using noodles like literally pasta, and then also ideas about blocking or theatrical staging using a rotating spice rack, all of which are sort of paired with evocative essays by the likes of Bill Doner, Samuel Eights, and others uh, who offer their evocative creative rumination in dialogue or response to the video. And plus there's like uh, an audio video with dramaturg Jane Barnett in this one. I mean, all of it is a pretty exciting experiment in scholarly publishing and one that I'm glad to be a part of. Indeed, my essay appears as the introductory essay, which each issue will include a lead or an introductory essay by a scholar in the field. And so thank you to editors Jean Marie, Jean Marie Higgins, Michael Schweidkart, and Ryan Douglas for not only founding this journal, but also the invitation to write the piece you're about to hear. And thanks too for your generosity in allowing me to share it in this way. Additional thanks are also due to you, the listeners of this podcast. As you listen, if you are in it, 
attentive or reliable or even an occasional listener to this podcast, at least for the last uh, since March, um, you may recognize some ideas you've heard before. Because indeed, this piece, my piece in defense of remote theater, is in some ways uh, a piece that I workshopped on this podcast. Um, and what you'll hear is a distillation, a refinement, a consolidation of some of the ideas I've been working with as I've been thinking with my students and thinking with all of y'all. Um, uh, in the last few months. So if you've been a listener to this, thank you first for that. And thank you for being a sort of um, an ideal audience member as I've been thinking about these ideas and refining them. So uh, know that if you have been listening, you will likely hear me say some things I've said before, but in a slightly different um, mode or register. So thank you. And I guess without further ado, it's time for me to read my own essay in defense, I'm going to go all audiobook on it. Okay. In defense of remote theater, as published in Prompt, a journal of theater theory and teaching, as read by me. Okay. Whew, here we go. In Defense of Remote Theater by Brian Eugenio Herrera, read by the author. I am an avid theater goer. As a theater scholar, it might be expected that I see a lot of shows, and I do, typically three or four per week with my annual count of shows seen tallying somewhere around or above 120 each year. Not as many shows as some, but certainly far more than most. For me, theater going is a practice, immediately relevant to both my vocational and my avocational priorities. Theater going is something I do to support my professional research, teaching, and writing, but it is also something I do for pleasure, engagement, and diversion. Some folks crochet, some folks garden, some folks run marathons. I go to the theater. Theater going is just something I do. I have not gone to the theater since Saturday, March 7th, 2020. The last show I attended was a late matinee presentation of Mud Slash Drowning, Mabu Mines's staging of two pieces by Maria Irene, Irene Fornes with the latter piece, Drowning, adapted as a chamber opera with music by Philip Glass. Mud slash Drowning was the fourth show of my theater-going week, which in my usual count begins on Sunday. The night before, I had seen an extraordinary on-campus performance of Macbeth, directed by Elena Arauz, and featuring a cast of women and non-binary student performers on a glitter pink stage. My theater-going week began the previous Sunday with two off-Broadway productions, Young Jean Lee's Everyone's Gonna Die at Second Stage and See Julian Jimenez's Bundle of Sticks at Intar. The Saturday I attended Mud Slash Drowning, I also had tickets to catch what was to have been my fifth show of the week, an NYU student staging of Maria Irene Fornes' musical Promenade. But at the last minute, 
I opted instead to leave those tickets unused, to have a leisurely dinner with my partner, and to head home early. When I made the decision to skip promenade that Saturday night in early March 2020, I had no inkling that it would be the last time I would have the option to enter the theater, enter a theater for a very long time. An awareness of the encroaching reality of COVID-19 stirred all around me that Saturday. Perhaps most conspicuously, folks in every men's room I entered were taking greater time and care to wash their hands than I had ever before witnessed. Even so, when I sift through my experiential recollections of that afternoon and evening, I note how many details that might have felt routine at the time now feel strange and exotic, even dangerous. The audience gathered in the smallish lobby, the excited embraces shared with acquaintances unexpectedly encountered, the volunteers selling pre-poured cups of white wine, the close seating inside the sold-out performance, the casually close conversation with the strangers seated next to me, the actors speaking and vocalists singing maybe eight feet away, the tiny table in the cozy Italian restaurant we chose for our post-show dinner, my elbow inches away from the arm of the person seated at the adjacent table. The not unwelcome experience of lots of people speaking and breathing and laughing all around me. Each of these flashing recollections stirs an immediate sensation of proximity my body in proximate relation to the bodies of others. Though sometimes hailed by other critical terms like liveness and presence, this presumptive experience of proximity undergirds foundational and often unspoken definitions of what performance or theater is, an event wherein performers and their audience gather in shared time, shared space, and shared air to co-create a transformative experience. Before quarantines, spending time in close proximity with the breathing bodies of others in the classroom, at the gym, on the street, on the bus, and perhaps especially at the theater, was routine for me. Moreover, the experience is among the relatively few cultural spaces along with the college classroom that remains dedicated to gathering people who know little about one another, but who are nonetheless willing to co-create a shared and potentially transformative experience. Since March 2020, however, the shared air experiences of co-presence once taken for granted as being part of theater going and of being in a college classroom have become freighted with an emergent sense of danger and uncertainty. Rigorous mechanisms of precaution are now required if and when such convenings are not prohibited outright. As confirmation that things are different now, a host of strategies, often involving technological mediation through apps, devices, and screens, have emerged to bridge the new distances between those who, up until quite recently, would have been gathered together in shared time, shared space, and shared air. In response to the new modes of theatrical convening that proliferated in 2020, a cluster of Vaguely synonymous modifiers emerged to describe what was going on. 
Such terms included, but were not limited to, digital, streaming, virtual, and perhaps most notoriously, Zoom theater. All of these terms, aside from perhaps Zoom theater, predated the pandemic as descriptors for particular techniques of both creation and presentation of performance, media, and pedagogy. However, the uncertainties of the 2020 shutdown effaced whatever descriptive precision these terms might have previously offered, as each became casually interchangeable with the other in the confused rush to announce, describe, and promote the wide array of theater performances suddenly blooming everywhere. Theaters might have been empty, but almost immediately theater makers were busy innovating new ways for audiences to engage the possibilities of live performance. Some moved quickly to create recorded performances of interrupted productions that could be available for ticketed streaming. Others maneuvered the thicket of contractual regulations to make archival recordings of past performances available for streaming. Many more began exploring the possibilities of using existing techniques, technologies, and platforms to develop soon-to-be-familiar modes of performance presentation. Indeed, within weeks of the March shutdown, a host of new performance genres, genres was emerging. Video compilation benefits like Take Me to the World, a Sondheim 90th birthday celebration, the DIY performance prompts like those offered by the Play at Home initiative, community conversations like, like Seth Rudetsky's Stars in the House, and yes, lots of Zoom readings of new and established play scripts. The creative resilience of socially distanced performance makers during the first few months of the pandemic was truly remarkable to behold. Indeed, it didn't take me long to realize that even though I wasn't going to the theater at all in April or May of 2020, I was engaging at least as many, if not many more, ostensibly live performance event during quarantines as in the before times. Even more, my students were engaging performances presented by companies across the country, in addition to those more local to our campus in central New Jersey. As I maneuvered this different manner of theater engagement, negotiating disparate time zones and divergent technological platforms, I found myself increasingly using the term remote theater to describe whatever it was I was engaging. Remote is a spatial modifier rather than a technological descriptor. Just as I would rarely categorize a work of performance solely by its venue, I'm seeing some proscenium theater tonight it made little sense to me to codify this proliferation of diverse performance offerings solely according to the technologies enabling my access to them. Indeed, almost immediately, whenever I thought of or spoke about the uh, 2020 performances I found most compelling or captivating, I was rarely more than glancingly concerned with the platform the performance co-creators used, but was instead much more interested in how these remote performances activated my awareness of the dynamic experiences of closeness and distance among the performance co-creators and their assembled audiences. Remote performance activates our awareness of relational proximity, defined not only as nearness in time and space, but also as distance. 
between ourselves and the performers, between the performance co-creators and between ourselves and others gathered as audience. These remote performances activated this particular mode of spatial awareness. An alert cognizant of the reality of the social distance between not only the performers and their audiences, but also among the performances co-creators, performers, directors, technicians. In contradistinction to the other ostensibly synonymic modifiers we have become accustomed to, remote performance describes what I believe to be an emerging theatrical modality that seems to be coming into focus a modality invested in wrangling the often uninterrogated questions and presumptions at play in idealized invocations of shared air and shared space. This alertness to relational proximity is, I suspect, why remote theater so quickly became my preferred term and why my dedication to it has only deepened. For me, remote theater describes a particular modality of theater making that, while not unique to 2020, has been refined by the pressures of this historical moment to become what I believe will be an enduring, relevant, and transformative mode of theatrical, theatrical encounter well into the foreseeable future. Of course, this kind of theatrical encounter this theater of proximity, wherein the performance event demarcates not only the spatial relationships among the performers, but also with the theatrical apparatus and the audience itself, is by no means new to this moment. Indeed, some of the most evocative and often provocative recent pre-pandemic theatrical events have toyed with such questions of relational proximity. A handful of acclaimed plays, including Jackie Sibley's Drury's Fairview and Alicia Harris's What to Send Up When It Goes Down, prompted the audience to physically rearrange itself in ways that brought the social and cultural distances between members of the same audience into view. Taylor Max, a 24-decade history of popular music in both its durational marathon presentations and its more abbreviated multi-hour excerpts, Stage cycles of audience movement and interaction to underscore disparate experiences of time, space, and community. The dramatic momentum of Heidi Schreck's What the Constitution Means to Me, whether staged in a tiny downtown venue on Broadway or on Amazon Prime, tracked how the experience of personal embodiment was always already embedded in the social relations of the body politic, a notion amplified when the assembled audiences become a voting body if only for a fleeting moment. And this is but a small sampling of the many performance makers, perhaps especially since 2015, who have intentionally exploited the peculiar physical intimacies of the theater apparatus to reckon with the experience and implications of our societal or social distance from one another. Even so, suspicions about 2020's non-voluntary turn to remote performance strategies has persisted, often invoking familiar notions of not liveness and presence to insist that theater isn't theater unless the audience and the performers are sharing time and space to create the event. As example, pathbreaking theater divisor John C. Collins questioned a theater journalist's Twitter query about worthwhile takeaways from 2020, responding, quote, 
I don't think I'll ever be convinced that something streaming on video live or pre-recorded could constitute theater. Collins continued, if you're not breathing the same air as the actors, it's not theater. This thrumming refrain that whatever, call, whatever it calls itself, remote performance is not theater because we're not in the room together stands as an intriguing and notably consistent counter-argument to those like me affirming the value in work engage, emerging in this historical moment. Indeed, my own adoption of remote theater as a preferred term was in part inspired by such resistance. I found the emphatic expressions of resistance, whether born of weariness or of wariness, fascinatingly reminiscent of the genre disavowals that routinely dismiss musical theater in, in theater scholarship, criticism, and general conversation. Sure, it's valid, I guess, but it's not the kind of thing I look to theater for. I know plenty of people like them, but I really hate them. Why are there so many all of a sudden? I just can't with another one. Such expressions, such sentiments are expressions of taste, certainly, but they are also formal critiques. The rejection of a particular genre as less artistically legitimate for its failure to adhere to presumptively fundamental features of the form. Moreover, similar expressions of critical sentiment have been deployed to dismiss political theater, immersive theater, and even devised theater. Remote theater describes what I see to be an evolving form of theater that not unlike musical or devised theater deploys specialized theatrical techniques within a necessarily different division of theatrical labor, a legitimate and emerging form of theatrical presentation, which may not be to the taste of every audience, critic, or theater maker. Perhaps unsurprisingly, as this emerging theatrical subgenre of remote theater discovers its form, collisions with theatrical convention are inevitable. Productions built to both accommodate and engage the constraints, obligations, and possibilities of the particular spatial relations afforded to the performance, performances, audiences, and its co-creators will almost inevitably confound traditional expectations of what theater is. A striking example might be found in Miami New Drama's presentation, uh, Seven Deadly Sins, a series of seven short plays staged in storefronts in December 2020. In the production, each play was performed behind the glass of separate storefront windows before small groups of masked and socially distanced audience members who were seated outside and who moved as a group between each window's performance. With a cast of 14, Seven Deadly Sins was acknowledged as the largest pandemic-safe professional production to be staged live in 2020 since the March shutdown. Yet Miami New Drama encountered difficulties explaining to Actors' Equity how their production, crafted with meticulous attention to the safe, socially distant spatial relation among the performers, between the performers and the production apparatus, and amidst the production crew and assembled audience, how all of that was in compliance with the union's regulations for COVID-safe working conditions. Artistic director Michael Hausman observed, quote, equity's whole system was set up with the idea that theater is what you and I know as traditional theater with the audience and the actors sharing air. General manager Julie Kashube, forgive me for if I mispronounce that, Julie Kashube elaborated, all the guidelines assume the cast is on a singular stage. 
There were no guidelines to address the specifics of what we were doing. As I reflect on my year of pandemic safe remote theater going, I'm struck by the broader truth of Kashube's statement. There are indeed few existing guidelines to address the particulars of the many forms and formats of this emerging mode of theatrical encounter. Performance makers in 2020 have been obliged to wrangle both the constraints and the possibilities activated by the year's shuddering, shuddering uncertainties, even as they have explored how our constant calibrations of nearness and distance might activate creativity, connection, and community. In so doing, they've contributed to evolving an evolving aesthetic vocabulary and repertoire of practice that exceeds extant guidelines for what theater is or might be. What of the participatory intimacies activated by Tricklock Company's presentation of Katie Farman's package play, wherein the audience signed up to receive a small box in the mail containing the necessary props to join in the activities cued by an accompanying audio play? And how about that startling moment when the actor caught and then held my gaze through our video connection in Theater for One's production of We Here We Are? Or the surreally immersive experiment of White Snake Project's Alice in the Pandemic, in which the voices of live singers in different locations animated digital avatars moving through a virtual landscape. What of how that experience tapped into the jarring, nonsensical sensation of powerlessness and grief that has so defined 2020? Or the crackling wonder triggered by the dramaturgically sophisticated live film experiments as disparate as Fake Friends' Circle Jerk or Virginia Grease's Farm for Meme or Split Bridge's Last Gasp, WFH. Indeed, for a year with no theater, I was somehow able to maintain my practice of avid theater going, and I have more than my fair share of peak experiences to show for it. Such experiences remind me that our current moment of mandated social distance arrives as we approach the end of the second decade of so-called social media, a constellation of digital communication practices that have shifted our sense of relational proximity. There is no shared air in social media, even though there can be shared experience of time, space, and community. Moreover, this nearly two decades of experience with the peculiar social distance rehearsed in social media has created a host of emotional, conceptual, and experiential realities that have little to do with sharing air. The social media era has also acquainted audiences and performance makers alike with the peculiar yet always dynamic tension between immediacy and asynchronicity, which stirs some perhaps unanswerable questions. Did remote theater practice emerge in response to the social distance protocols necessitated by the pandemic of 2020? Or were the historical disruptions of 2020 the context for the emergence of a theatrical mode necessary to evince the emotional, experiential, and intellectual dimensions of relational proximity in the socially distant era of social media? We cannot predict what the practices and processes of theatrical engagement of, the, of remote theater will become. But I would submit that remote theater is not simply a set of emergency measures undertaken to sustain creative experience, spirits or financial solvency during an unprecedented constellation of crises. Nor is remote theater the performance equivalent of turkey bacon or near beer. 
Remote theater is no substitute for real theater, but it is instead a dynamic emerging subgenre of theatrical practice and presentation. Not every theater goer is going to like remote theater, and not every theater maker is going to possess the particular constellation of instincts, inclinations, or passions most suited to the practice of remote theater. Yet, as an emerging repertoire of practice, as a rapidly evolving mode of both theater making and theater going, I have every confidence that remote theater is here to stay and that it will continue to shape the theatrical horizon for the foreseeable future. Stinky Lulu Says is an independent project of Stinky Lulu Productions, recorded in Princeton, New Jersey, which is the unceded ancestral land of the Lenny Lenape. As I gather my thoughts each week, I do so in honor of the ongoing history and living culture of the Nanticoke Lenny Lenape people, of the other indigenous caretakers of these lands and waters, of the elders who lived here before, of the indigenous people living today, both in and beyond the sound of my voice, and of the generations yet to come. Stinky Lulu Says, the podcast began in the summer of 2016 with a cycle of six episodes, which are still available somewhere on SoundCloud. After laying dormant for a number of years, the podcast came back to life for what was a six-episode reboot in the spring of 2020, all in the context of the earliest days of the COVID-19 shutdown. The podcast served both as a way to respond to the unfolding crisis and also as a teaching resource for a course I was then teaching in 21st century Latinx drama. Then, um, after those six episodes came a brief summer's hiatus, but with our campus still closed in the fall of 2022, Stinky Lulu says returned for a cycle of 10 or 11 episodes, depending on how you count that in August through November of 2020, all as part of a different course, Theater and Society Now. Um, as it happens, I am teaching that course again in the spring of 2021. So this fourth cycle of episodes uh, began as February did and will continue to land in your podcast stream most Sundays through the end of April this year. And as always, if you have something you would like to have your say about what Stinky Lulu says, you can always, you can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Stinky Lulu. That's S-T-I-N-K-Y-L-U-L-U. You can also always email me via my Princeton Princeton address or at StinkyLulu at gmail.com. And usually links links to resources referenced in most episodes can of the of the podcast can be typically found in the corresponding weekly edition of my Theater Click newsletter. For a link to that newsletter's archive and to other resources, look for the Profe Herrera tab on my Princeton University Scholar page. That's scholar.princeton.edu slash B Herrera. And as a, a direct link to the Profe Herrera tab also happens to be the twin pinned tweet, pinned tweet on my Twitter profile page at Stinky Lulu. That Profe Herrera tab is also where you find the link to the transcript for today's episode. Transcripts are typically available within 48 hours, give or take of the podcast's first posting. They usually are kind of rough, but they usually are there. 
Until next time, as you maintain your social distance, as you do what you can to take care of yourself and your beloveds, as you wear your dang mask, hold tight to the words of Dr. Kamara Phyllis-Jones, who says, be strong, be safe, be anti-racist. And as we all do whatever we can do along those lines, as we stay fierce in both our artistry and our advocacy, I invite you to join me in my belief that so long as we find a way to keep listening to each other, we together can grow forward, even through this. At least, that's what Stinky Lulu says. <laughs>